Hello, welcome to Asbury. My name is Pastor Mike. Thanks for joining our podcast. This is where you'll be able to find all of our sermons, as well as interviews and special devotionals. We hope these messages inspire and support you as you grow on your journey of faith. If you have any questions or want to have further conversation, or if you simply like what you hear, connect with Asbury through our Facebook page or by checking out our website at asburymaitland.org. Good morning again, everybody, and welcome to worship here at Asbury. I forgot to mention this during the announcements, but if you are visiting with us today, we would love it if you would take one of these Connect cards. We have Connect cards in the very back as you leave. Uh, Make sure that you fill it out. uh, Place it in the same place that we put our tithes and offerings. Uh, We would love the chance to follow up with you. Even if you're just in town for a visit and you're only here for the weekend, we would still love to follow up with you. So make sure that you fill out a Connect card. If you're worshiping online, Um, You can fill out a virtual Connect card by typing the word Connect in the chat section, and Cindy Johnson, uh, who's on staff here, she will follow up with you, get your information so we have it on file. Well, A.J. Gordon was a well-known Baptist pastor back in the 1800s. He also served as a senior minister of Clarendon Church in Boston, Massachusetts. If you've ever heard of Gordon College in uh, Massachusetts, Gordon College is named after A.J. Gordon, this really famous pastor. Well, the story goes that one time uh, when he was serving as a pastor at Clarendon, he was just kind of walking around the church grounds when he came across this young man, maybe 12, 13 years old. In his hand, he had a cage, and inside the cage, there were several birds fluttering nervously. And so Gordon asked the young man where he got the birds from, and he said, sir, I trapped them outside. And then he asked him what he was going to do with them, and he said, I'm not really sure. I haven't really thought it through. I'll probably play around with them for a little bit. And then when I get bored, I'll feed them to a cat that we have at the house. Well, Gordon really felt bad for these birds, and his heart went out to them. And so he said to the young man, I will buy those birds from you. And the kid said, Mr., you don't want these birds. They're just a bunch of little old birds. They can't even sing that well. And Gordon said, I will pay you $2 for that cage and those birds. Now, back in the 1800s, $2 was a heck of a lot of money. It was worth about $40 by our standards today. So the kid said, Mr., you've got yourself a deal. Gordon gave the kid his money, and uh, the kid went away smiling. Then Gordon took the cage, he went outside, he opened the door of the cage, and immediately those birds flew into the sky. Well, the very next Sunday, he was standing in the pulpit, and he had that empty cage with him, and he used it as a sermon illustration when talking about redemption. When he got to the very end of the illustration, he said to his congregation, that kid insisted to me that those birds could not sing. But folks, when I opened up that door, and those birds flew into the heavens, it seemed to me that they were singing, redeemed, redeemed, redeemed. Well, redeemed is one of the sweetest words of our language. Uh, literally means to buy something back, to recover something, uh, to restore something that was lost. And redemption is actually one of the main themes, one of the overarching themes of a book in the Bible that we're going to look at together over the next few weeks. And the book that I'm talking about is the Old Testament book of Ruth. In fact, some variation of the word redemption shows up at least 23 times in Ruth. 23 times, which to my knowledge might be more than anywhere else in all of Scripture, that at its core, Ruth is a story of redemption. It's a story of how God redeems decisions, God redeems circumstances, situations, lives, families, and it's also a story that foreshadows the greatest redemption of all, which would be the redemption that God accomplished for all of us through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. And so with all this being said, uh, today at Asbury, uh, we are kicking off this new series. I'm really excited about it. Uh, We're calling this series 
Ruth, a story of redemption. Ruth, a story of redemption. And so over the next few weeks, as we make our journey through Ruth, we're going to see how different themes play out and unfold, but especially this theme of redemption, because as I mentioned, it's one of the main themes of this book. Some variation of the word redemption shows up at least 23 times in the story. And I have a challenge for all of us this morning as we start this new series. My challenge for us, for those of us in person, for those of us online, my challenge for us is to read the entirety of Ruth at least once a week. Can you do that? Read the entirety of Ruth at least once a week. Uh, allow the power of the story to wash over you. Enter into the narrative. Identify with the characters. Write down questions that the text raises for you. Folks, I promise you that you will come to understand Ruth on a deeper level, and you'll also be well prepared for the conversations that we'll be having on Sunday morning through the month of June. Now, Ruth is four chapters long. Not a very big book. Four chapters long. And we're going to be in chapter one today. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, I would encourage you to open it up to the book of Ruth. You can also find the Bible on your phone. You can watch it or watch it. You can read it that way. Uh, just Google Ruth chapter one. But before we go to Ruth chapter one, uh, which is where we're going to be this morning, let me set the backdrop for this story. So Ruth is the eighth book of the Bible. Uh, comes just after Judges and right before 1 Samuel. In fact, as scholars point out, Ruth in many ways is a bridge from Judges to 1 Samuel. The book transitions us from the period of the judges to the period of the kings. And here's what I mean by that. After God's people, the Israelites, initially left Egypt, where they were enslaved for 400 years, they were led by Moses to the very edge of the promised land. Now, did Moses go into the promised land? Moses did not go into the promised land because he had disobeyed God. He had upset God. That was a consequence of his actions. So he did not go into the promised land himself. Instead, Joshua, Moses' successor, took the people of God into the promised land, fought off the people who were living there. And then when Joshua passed away, there was a vacuum of leadership in Israel. There was no set person to lead the people of God going forward, which basically meant chaos ensued. As the writer of Judges says, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Not everybody did what was right in God's eyes. Not everybody was obedient to the Lord. Instead, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And what would happen every once in a while during this very turbulent period is the people of God would get, get to get attacked by their enemies. And so when they would get attacked by their enemies, they would cry out to God for mercy and rescue. Please, God, save us. Please, God, uh, rescue us. And God, in response to their prayers, he would raise up a judge. And the judge would lead the people of God into battle against their enemies. Do you all remember some of the judges that are talked about in the book of Judges? Give me a name. Gideon. Gideon? Deborah? Samson, you've heard of Samson, right, with his long hair? These are some of the judges in the Old Testament. So the judges would lead the people of God. The thing about the judges, though, is the judges were local leaders, not national leaders. And they were military leaders, not political leaders. There was no national political leader to lead God's people during this time. This was before the period of the kings, before King Saul, before King David, before King Solomon. We read about those guys later on in the Old Testament. And it's in this chaotic period that the story of Ruth takes place. Again, Ruth is a bridge from Judges to 1 Samuel. The book transitions us from the period of the judges to the period of the kings. And so with this context in mind, listen carefully to what it says here. Uh, this is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, we've already talked about this, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malone and Kilion. 
They were Ephratites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. So the period of the judges was this chaotic period filled with a lot of political unrest, social unrest. And what made this period even tougher is that on top of all this unrest, a famine struck the land. Now think about this. What had God's people been told about the promised land? It was a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. In other words, it was a place of abundant resources. A famine should not be happening in the promised land. And what's really ironic is that this famine affected of all places Bethlehem. Why is that ironic? Because what does Bethlehem mean? It says it up here on the screen. It means house of bread in Hebrew. So basically the house of bread has no bread. And evidently this famine got to be so bad that it compelled one family in particular to leave Bethlehem, to leave the promised land, to go outside the promised land and journey to this place called Moab. Now this was a controversial decision for a couple of reasons. Moab was not seen favorably by the people of God. Number one, the Moabite people were believed to be the descendants of an incestuous relationship that had taken place between Lot and one of his daughters. We read about that in Genesis chapter 19. Remember Lot, he was a nephew of Abraham. Well, Lot had gone into a cave with his two daughters and he had gotten drunk. This is actually in scripture. And he had had a relationship with his two daughters. They both got pregnant. The one daughter gave birth to a child named Moab. And from Moab, the Moabite people came. So they were the offspring of this really unholy relationship, horrific relationship. And then number two, the Moabites would worship a bunch of false gods, pagan gods, and they would lead the people of Israel astray into worshiping these false gods. So the question we have to ask ourselves at this point in the story is this, was it right for this family to leave the promised land and journey into Moab? You know what's really interesting? The text doesn't tell us the answer. Now commentators, I've read some commentators this week, commentators will give us their opinion. They'll say this was a bad idea, bad decision, wrong move, but the text doesn't tell us either way. And maybe there's a reason for that. Sometimes in difficult situations, the best decision is hard to arrive at. Isn't that true? Sometimes in difficult situations, the best decision is hard to arrive at. I remember when my mom was dying of cancer six years ago, and we were in the ICU, and she was hooked up to monitors and to machines, and she wasn't responsive. My family and I had to make some really important medical decisions on my mom's behalf, decisions that, quite frankly, I never wanted to make. And there were times when I wondered, are we making the right decision? Is this the decision that my mom would want us to make? Is this the decision that God wants us to make? Sometimes in a difficult situation, the best decision is hard to arrive at. At some point, because of a famine, this family had to make the tough and difficult choice to leave Bethlehem, leave the promised land, leave behind everything they knew and loved, and journey into Moab. Maybe the majority of commentators are right. Maybe it was a bad decision. Maybe it was the wrong decision, but at the very least, we can empathize with them. We can understand their reason for doing so. This was a famine. They were afraid of starving to death. They had nothing to eat. And then when they got to Moab, things went from bad to worse because what happened next? Elimelech, the father, the husband, the patriarch of this family, what happens to him? He dies. He dies. We didn't know how he died. We didn't know what manner he died. The text doesn't tell us that. All it says is that he died. And then on top of all that, on top of his death, what happened next was these two sons, Malone and Kilion, they had gotten married to Moabite women, which by the way, I'm sure Naomi was not thrilled with that. 
Naomi would have preferred that her uh, sons marry Jewish women, but she probably thought to herself, you know what? I don't personally agree with this, but hey, one day I'm going to have grandchildren. So, so at least I'm, I'm uh, solid there. But then what happened before she could ever have grandchildren is these two sons just died, leaving Naomi not just a widow, but a childless widow. She has no sons. She has no grandchildren. She has nobody to look after her, which unfortunately in that day, in a patriarchal culture, that was necessary for a woman to survive. The title of today's sermon is At the End of Your Rope. You want to talk about being at the end of your rope? Naomi was at the end of her rope. You ever been in a situation like that? It doesn't seem like life could get any harder, but it does. 2020 felt like that in some ways, right? Just one thing after another. The ground's been pulled out from under you. When I was in seminary, I served for a semester as a hospital chaplain at Carolina Hospitals in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I was doing a unit of what's called CPE, clinical pastoral education. I'll never forget offering pastoral care to this woman whose four-year-old son, four years old, he was a patient at the hospital. This little boy was suffering from bone marrow issues, and because of that, every time I would go into the room to see him, I would have to wear a gown and a mask and gloves, and the mom was usually always there by her, by her son's bedside. I never got to talk to that little boy because he was always asleep when I'd go in the room, but I shared a number of conversations with his mom. And in those conversations, I learned that a sick child was not the only thing that she was dealing with. Evidently, what had happened when this child got sick is her husband just up and left. He just abandoned the family because he didn't want to deal with the stress of having a sick child. This woman was working two different jobs just to keep up with all these hospital bills. Any time that wasn't spent in the hospital was spent working. And so given the fact that she was always at the hospital or always working, coupled with the fact that the dad had left, well, this woman also had a teenage daughter. She was acting up in school. She was having behavioral issues. She had even gotten into a fist fight, and because of that, she was suspended. When I talked to this woman, she had bags under her eyes. It was clear to me that she hadn't slept for days. Truth be told, I was amazed that she was even intact given all that she'd been through. And it amazes me when I read this story that Naomi was even intact given all that she had been through. She had suffered tremendously. She had lost her husband, lost her sons, had to move to a distant land. And yet what Naomi and this woman shared in common is they both held on to God. They both maintained their faith in God. These two women had the kind of faith that we might characterize as fidelity. Can you say this with me? Fidelity. Fidelity is the deepest kind of faith there is. Fidelity is the kind of faith where we hold on to God no matter what. We hold on to God no matter what. Even if our circumstances tell us not to, even if our circumstances lie to us and say, God doesn't exist. God doesn't love you. God doesn't care about you. God's not invested in you. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. We stubbornly and persistently hold on to God no matter what. That faith is what gave that woman in the hospital hope, and that faith is what gave Naomi hope and encouraged Naomi to press on even in the face of what she was going through. Now, granted, it's worth recognizing that Naomi's theology, in other words, her understanding of God, her theology was not fully developed. Because when you read this opening chapter, chapter one, two times in this chapter, Naomi attributes her suffering to God. She says that God is the reason for all this, even though the text never says that. She just kind of goes along with this assumption that most people had in the ancient world, that if I'm suffering, and unfortunately, a lot of people carry this assumption today, that if I'm suffering, God must be behind my suffering. 
Even though scripture challenges that assumption in a number of places, she just believes that. But listen, even if Naomi's theology wasn't fully developed, she put her faith in a perfect God. Even if her theology wasn't necessarily developed, she put her faith in a perfect God. She entrusted her life, not to chance, but to God. Believing that God was sovereign over everything, even the crummy circumstances in which she found herself. And folks, it occurs to me that when you and I see somebody display that kind of faith, that kind of fidelity faith, we can give several different responses. One response would be to assume that person's crazy, right? That person is insane. They're naive to what they're going through. They have no idea what's going on. But then there are two less cynical responses that we can give. Number one, we can admire that person's faith from a distance. We can admire that person's faith from far away. Or number two, we could be so inspired by that person's faith, so enthralled by that person's faith, that we're moved to commit to God. And actually, when we read this story, we discover that both of these responses unfold in this story. Because listen to what happens as the text goes on. This is from Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Then Naomi heard in Moab, again, this is where she was living at the time, she heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah. Judah was a part of the promised land. Bethlehem was within Judah. The Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. So Naomi hears this report. We don't know how she heard it, but she hears this report that there's food back in Judah. So she decides to go back there. She's not by herself. She has her daughters-in-law because her daughters-in-law were now a part of her family. They technically had an obligation to her. Even though they were from Moab, they were you know, feeling compelled to go back with her to the promised land. Except Naomi also felt as if she had an obligation to her daughters-in-law because back then in Israelite culture, if a man died leaving his wife without any children, there was an expectation for one of the brothers to step in to marry the widow and to provide children to her. This was called leveret marriage. We're going to hear more about leveret marriage over the next few weeks as we continue on in this sermon series. It was really important back then. The issue was Naomi didn't have any other sons to give her daughters-in-law. And so as she's heading back to Judah with them, she changes her mind and she says to them in a conversation, hey, listen, you know what? Just go back home. Go back to Moab. I got nothing left to give you. And when they insist on staying, she says to them, even if you were to come back with me, I, I don't have any other sons. And if I were to get remarried, which is unlikely, and give birth to children, are you going to stick around and wait for these sons to grow up so that you could be married to them and have children one day with them? That's ridiculous. That's absurd. Go back home. Go back to your gods. Go back to your families. Well, the one daughter-in-law, Orpah, I always want to say Oprah when I read this story, but it's Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, Orpah, who seems to admire Naomi's faith from a distance, she decides to go back home. We never hear from her again. We have no idea what happened to Orpah. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, whom this book is named after, she refuses to leave. She will not leave her mother-in-law. Listen to what happens as the story develops. Uh, this is from Ruth chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 18. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. 
When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. Folks, it's evident that Ruth has adopted Naomi's faith because she actually uses two different names for God in this passage. This is really easy to miss when you're reading in the English, but she uses two different names for God in this passage. The first name she uses is Elohim. Elohim, uh, which we translate as God, it's more general, it's more generic, it's less personal. But then the second name that she uses is Yahweh, and we translate Yahweh as Lord. Lord, that's the proper name of God. That was the name that was given to God's servant Moses at the burning bush. Notice again what it says in these verses. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. And your God, Elohim, will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there will we be buried. May the Lord, Yahweh, punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Do you see that shift? Naomi goes from, or not Naomi, but Ruth goes from saying God to Lord. She goes from saying God to Lord. In other words, Naomi's Lord has become Ruth's Lord. She uses that proper name of God, that relational name of God. Naomi's Lord has become Ruth's Lord. Ruth has seen her mother-in-law suffer tremendously. Go through a famine, leave her home, lose her husband, lose her children, and yet stubbornly hold on to God. And that faith inspires her to say, I want to hold on to God too. I want to be a worshiper of God myself. So here's the question I want to leave us with as we start to wrap up this message. Have you ever, like Ruth, been so inspired by somebody's faith that it helped shape your own faith? Have you ever, like Ruth, been so inspired by somebody's faith that it helped shape your own faith? I have. Uh, in the congregation I served before coming to Asbury, as soon as I got there, I met this woman named Valerie. Uh, as soon as I got there, everybody said, hey, Chris, you gotta go meet Valerie. And so I found her number and I called her up on the phone and we set up an appointment and I went to her house for a visit. And I learned that for a long time, Valerie had been battling cancer. Uh, thankfully, at that point, the cancer was in remission, but there was a strong possibility it could come back. And so as we were talking, Valerie was um, explaining to me her journey with cancer. And I was just so amazed by her resiliency and the depth of her faith. This was a woman who truly put her trust in God. At the time, I thought that I had gone into that house to offer ministry to Valerie, but when I left, I realized that Valerie had ministered to me because I found the quality of her faith so inspiring. And that really helped me because a month later, I was about to enter a difficult season of my own life with my mom dying of cancer, as I mentioned earlier in the service. And even when Valerie ended up dying of cancer five years later, her faith in God never went anywhere. It remained until the very end. Folks, when we're at the end of our rope and we stubbornly hold on to God, God can use that to inspire others. God used Naomi to inspire Ruth. God used Valerie to inspire me. God can use you to inspire somebody too. And so as chapter one of Ruth ends, uh, there's a lot more in this chapter that we don't have time to get into today. But as chapter one of Ruth ends, Naomi and Ruth, they finally make their way into Judah and to Bethlehem. And when you read the story, you discover that the people are excited to see Naomi because they haven't seen her for years. They haven't seen her for a long, long time. They didn't even know that she was still alive. She had no way to communicate with them. So they're all excited to see her, but Naomi's not excited to see them. She gives them a mouthful. This is what it says of Ruth chapter one, verse 19 and verse 20. When they, that is Naomi and Ruth, came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Imagine all the, the commotion that was going on. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, 
You know what Mara means? Mara is the Hebrew word for bitter. Naomi's bitter. Yeah, she's put her faith in God, but she's also bitter. And who can blame her given all that she'd been through? But I love this comment that the writer makes at the very end of this chapter. This is so important. It says this in verse 22. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Did you catch it? They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. As we're going to see over the next few weeks, especially next week, this is not some random line that the writer adds for fun. Instead, this line sets up the rest of the story, the rest of the narrative, as God begins to work his redemptive grace in Naomi's life and Ruth's life. In fact, we might even say that this line is the writer's way of saying, without explicitly saying it, but God. Can you say that with me? But God. But God. Yes, Naomi has suffered tremendously. She's lost her husband. She's lost her sons. She's suffered a famine. She has no other sons to give Ruth. Yeah, Ruth is seemingly out of her mind for coming back to Bethlehem. It doesn't seem like she has a future before her, but God was up to something in the midst of all this. God hadn't caused this tragedy, but already God was working behind the scenes to redeem it, to bring good out of it as only God can do. And folks, that's what I want us to hear this morning, that God is working behind the scenes to redeem your tragedy, whatever that tragedy might be or involved. That's the kind of God that we have. That's the kind of God that we serve. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. God, I love this book that you made sure was put in the Bible so long ago. I love this story. Naomi's faith, Ruth's faith, the way that you used Naomi to inspire Ruth. Thank you for the lessons, for the truth that we can glean from these texts, for what it teaches us about you and about what it means to be a follower of you, to live as one of your children on this planet. God, thank you for the ways in which you use other people and their faith to inspire us to commit to you maybe for the very first time, or maybe just on a deeper level. And God, thank you for that truth, that you are always working behind the scenes. You never leave us, you never abandon us, you never forsake us. You are always there, working for our good. So God, continue to work for our good. Continue to work your redemptive grace, as only you are able to do. We ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.